Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 8. A few weeks ago, we started a series that uh, we tentatively titled uh, Building Blocks to Victory. And it's kind of evolved to some things that, um, uh, for me, things that I wish that I had known early on. This is one of those things that I really wish that I had known as a boy growing up in church. I'm not blaming anybody else for it because we're all responsible for ourselves. But I really wish this had been one of the things that they had instilled in us. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It came as a big surprise to me when I went through the book of Romans. And I guess the first time that we ever did was in, uh, as a class in Bible school there at Rama Bible Training Center. And there were some things that I saw in it and things that, uh, that were taught to us that was attention-getting. It certainly grabbed my attention. But I can't say with any certainty that I took hold of it or took hold of much of it because it was something, condemnation was something that was ingrained in me. Well, I don't know how many years I wasted on feeling condemned. I hate to count them up, to be honest with you. And even translators betrayed us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul speaks of the struggle that he had, which was a great shock to me. Who would have ever thought the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men in the body of Christ outside of Jesus ever, who would have thought that he would have had trouble with his flesh, bringing his flesh into submission and so forth? But he talks about it, and it really seems to me that he's agonizing a bit in remembering to his remembering back to his struggles between his spirit and his flesh but he comes to the place where he realizes at the end of chapter 7 he comes to the place where he realizes that Jesus shed blood the sacrifice that he made for us covered condemnation and so he declares and and this is a, a victory declaration there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus now, the rest of the verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. I think the thing that gets a lot of people is that even if they see the good news that there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, the next phrase qualifies that condemnation and in most cases doesn't free us, but rather leaves us shackled and bound. But this phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is not in verse 1. In the original transcripts, manuscripts, it's not in there. Now, it is there later on in verse, uh, verse 4. Let's just read the whole thing as it should be. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For, here's the reason why, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now here Paul is talking about the sacrifice of Jesus as being the only thing that's necessary to escape condemnation. Again, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or for a substitute for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, most of the times when we, when we read that, we think behavior, but that's not what he's talking about. 
Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or an enemy of God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, if we think behavior when he talks about being in the flesh, then we become hopelessly mired in this condemnation, perhaps never to escape. I'm convinced that there's a lot of Christians that will never escape the idea or the feeling that they've been condemned or are condemned because they can't control their flesh and put away sin. But notice after Paul saying these things, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice what he says to the ones he's writing to. Now he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, that, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. In other words, he's saying if Jesus lives in your heart, you're not in the flesh. You're not the carnally minded that he's talking about. You're not in a position to, uh, to be or receive to be under or to receive condemnation in any form whatsoever. You're saved. You've received the work of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus has been made for you and on your behalf. So there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Like I said, I hate to think of how many years I spent feeling condemned. And it affects everything about your, about your Christian life. John wrote, 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, I believe it is. John wrote, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. If our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. Condemnation will rob you of your confidence. It'll rob you of your ability to believe that you receive, to pray the prayer of faith effectively and successfully. And it seems to me that that's the place in condemnation. This place of condemnation is the place where most Christians live out the whole of their lives. They're stuck there. They'll never get out of that. And all because they don't see what the Word has to tell us. Now, like I said, I'm not blaming somebody else. I sure wish there had been somebody that would have taught us. But whether or not there were or was anybody to teach us, wasn't in my experience, but maybe in other people's experience, it's not the same way. But whether or not somebody teaches us the right thing or not, we've got a Bible and we are responsible for our own growth and development in the Word. It wouldn't have occurred to me in my younger years growing up in the church that I was in, it wouldn't have occurred to me to read the Bible for a purpose. We were taught to read the Bible, or we were told we should, but nobody really told us why we should. And nobody really was able to tell us the benefit that they derived from reading the Bible. And so for me, I'm sad to say, but for many years of my life, the Bible was just a, a sacred book that wasn't really meant to be read, certainly wasn't meant to be used in any way. It was just something that we accepted was God's Word. And anything that we did read in it, we read it just for information's sake. Nobody would have even dared to think. I certainly didn't. But nobody would even have dared to think that it was something to be used as a weapon. Something to be used that would grow you in spirit and help you advance and mature in the things of God. And walk in victory. Folks, the idea of walking in victory wasn't even mentioned when I was growing up. Thank God there's more though. I can't imagine 
not reading the word, not reading the Bible. But I spent many years as a young boy and as a teenager not even attempting to read the Bible. Now for 45 or some odd years, I can't think of a day or can't think of why a day would go past that I wouldn't read the Bible. And it's not so much just reading the page, the words on the page, but meditating in the Word and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to draw from your heart those things which you planted in there. Even if you don't have access to read the book, the Word planted in your heart is even greater in that sense. So I went from dry ground, saved, but dry ground to the perfect ground that I am today. Now, I may have got you with that word perfect, but there's something you need to know. And that is there are two primary words that are translated perfect in the New Testament. The one means complete. Matthew 5, 48, for example, says, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That just means complete. Well, the Bible tells us that we are complete in the Father through Jesus. Again, his sacrifice brings us into that position. And it is a position. It's a position of being perfect before God. Now, nobody but Jesus has the right to ever claim to be perfect in the sense that he never missed it or never made a mistake. Jesus never steps out outside the, the law of love. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, he said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. Romans 13, 10 says that love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We don't have but one law to keep, and that's the law of love. Now, that's not because the Ten Commandments were bad. They've just been fulfilled. See, you're not going to cheat or steal or lie on somebody or against somebody if you're walking in love. So all the law is, is, is fulfilled, encapsulated in the one law of love. Well, the second word that's used for perfect in the New Testament is the word katarzio in the Greek. And it means to adjust and repair. For example, when the Bible says the, that Jesus came upon the, uh, Peter, James, and John, they had been fishing and they were mending their nets. That word katarzio is translated mending in those scriptures. And it means to adjust and repair. Now, folks, just because we can't claim perfection in the sense that we've never missed it, never made a mistake, never stepped outside of love, we can certainly declare and should openly declare that we are willing and ready to adjust and repair anything that we do that steps outside of the law of love. See, we should openly declare our perfection. And again, the word perfect draws people into the idea. Most people have the idea that it's talking about never missing it or making a mistake. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what the Bible talks about. It's talking about adjusting and repairing. It's when you see you've made a mistake, you make the adjustment, and you repair it and get back over into the law of love. One of the greatest examples along this line that I've ever heard was a story that Brother Hagin used to tell. He was holding a meeting, a multi-week meeting, in a small church in a small town. And in that church, there was a couple that were ordained ministers themselves, both husband and wife. 
And they had been pastoring a church for some period of time, but they were in between pastorates. And so they moved back to their hometown, and that was the hometown and this church that Brother Hagen was, was ministering in. And Brother Hagen was talking about walking in love. And he quoted from 1 John where it says, If you hate your brother, then the life of God is not in you. You're a murderer and the life of God is not in you. Well, just to make a joke, Brother Hagen added, and that means brother-in-law too. Well, the next morning or the next uh, uh, day at lunch, this couple took Brother Hagen and his wife out to dinner or out to uh, out to lunch. And she said, in the course of the lunchtime conversation, she said, Brother Hagen, you've got me all confused. And he, teasing with her, said, no, you were confused before I got here. The light of God's word just showed it up. He said, what's your problem? She said, I hate my mother-in-law. Well, he, she brought to his remembrance that he said the night before, if you hate your brother, there's no eternal life abiding in you. And then he added, that means mother-in-law too. So he said, why would you say something like that? And she said, she gave the reasons. Most of them were the women in her family, were uh, the women in her in-laws' family, particularly her mother-in-law, was trying to control the son, and it created for conflict in, the, in this couple's home. And so she, she said to Brother Hagen, I'll hate my mother-in-law. So he said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to look me right in the eye and say, I hate my mother-in-law, and at the same time, check down on the inside of you to see what's happening. She looked him right in the eye and said, I hate my mother-in-law. And then he asked her, well, what's going on down in your, in your innermost being? She said, something down there is scratching me. He said, well, of course. The Bible says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God is there. You just need to act on it and release it. She said, well, what am I going to do? He said, act like you would if you did love your mother-in-law because in your heart you really do. Well, several days went by. And one uh, Friday night, the next Friday night that came around, this couple was having a fellowship over at their house, and they invited some people from the church, invited the pastor and his wife, invited Brother Hagen and his wife, and just got everybody together. And during this time of fellowship, this lady came to Brother Hagen and said, you know, Brother Hagen, you are exactly right. I don't hate my mother-in-law. My in-laws are wonderful people. I just wasn't giving them a chance. Well, that situation was cleared up for her. Now she stepped back over in love. But then over the course of the next few days, their daughter, their only child, their daughter had this, uh, I guess we'd call it epilepsy today, where she'd go into these fits. And there were some big ones, and there were some that were smaller ones. And, and in this particular case of epilepsy, the doctor that was treating her said that in all of his years of, of medical practice, he'd never seen a case this severe. Well, there'd be these minor seizures that would start happening as a sign that a big one was coming. So she called Brother Hagen. It was just before service time. They were just about walking out the door. She called him and asked if he would stop by her house, just a few houses down from the church, and pray for the child before they went on into the service. And he said that he would. He said he felt impressed in his heart that he should, so he said he would. And when they were on the way to the house, the Lord spoke to Brother Hagen 
so forcefully that Brother Hagin asked his wife, did she hear that? Well, she didn't know what he was talking about, so it wasn't an audible voice, but it seemed almost that way to him. And anyway, the Lord said to him, don't pray for the child. Tell the mother to say these words. Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hand off my child. So they went into the house. When they arrived, they went on inside. And this smaller fit, smaller epileptic seizure was beginning to take place, headed for the big ones. And Brother Hagin said, now, lady, I have to tell you what the Lord told me to do. And she, he repeated what the, uh, the Lord said to tell her. He said, without hesitation, she turned and pointed her finger at her daughter and said, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my daughter. And instantly that seizure stopped. And over the next 30 years, there was only one minor seizure that ever tried to come back upon her. And this time the mother had taught the daughter to do the same thing that she had done before. And so the daughter said, Satan, take your hand off my body. I'm walking in love. Now, in the Old Testament, it says in several places that if you'll keep the commandments of the Lord, then he'll take sickness from the midst of you. Well, if that was God's intent and the way that he operated in the Old Testament, why would it be any different under the New Testament? Because the only difference, God hadn't changed. He's not different. The only difference is under the New Covenant, we have one law and not 630. We have one law of love. So if we keep the commandments of God, keep the commandment of love, then we can expect the same results for him to take sickness away from the midst of us too. She made an adjustment. Now some people might say, yeah, but I'm not walking in love. Neither was she just a couple of days before. That's what I love about this story. God's not waiting for you to spend years of making penance or doing something or coming to the place where you feel worthy. He recognizes what we should all know, and that is the blood of Jesus was sufficient to remove all guilt and condemnation for us. Now back to Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about several things in this chapter. It's a, it's a wonderful chapter. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But I do want to start reading in verse uh, 31. After Paul talks about the victory that we have over the enemy because of Jesus' sacrifice, beginning in verse 31, Paul said, what, then, what shall we then say to these things? Notice he's talking about speaking. He said, what then should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice the way Paul thinks this. He's using his mind, he's using deductive reasoning to come to the realization of what Jesus has done for us and what belongs to us because of his sacrifice. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, one thing I think we ought to add to the list is the feeling of condemnation. Is that going to separate us from God's blessing, from God's goodness? Well, it shouldn't. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God is very clear in his Old Testament prophecies, things that pointed to the place that we would have with him through the sacrifice of Jesus. He said, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment or in condemnation, it would be pretty much the same thing. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment, thou shalt condemn. For their righteousness is of me, saith God. He seems to be pretty forceful on that. He seems to be serious. Our righteousness is of him. That's why the feeling of condemnation is such a wasted effort. Because everything that the devil would make us feel condemned about was paid for by the blood of Jesus. It's bought and paid for. It's purchased. He redeems our life from destruction and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercy. In righteousness, we shall be established. In righteousness, we shall be established. Folks, we need to get it out of our head that we're not good enough. Jesus made us good enough. And it was his blood that brought us into the place where we could come before the throne of God with confidence, expecting him to hear us, expecting him to help us. If God be for us, who can be against us? As Brother Hagin used to say, if God be for us, who cares who's against us? Because he's greater than all. Who is he that condemns? The devil's the one that tries to bring condemnation, but Jesus justified us. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God is proof that we've been made perfect in him. It's proof that we are righteous, that we are the righteousness of God in him. It's proof, the fact that he's sitting at the right hand of God. You don't sit down until the work's finished. The fact that he's sitting at the right hand of God and not still working, not still trying to achieve something, not trying to add to the blood that was shed, he's our living proof that we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Folks, there's one law that we have to keep, and that's the law of love. And if we will keep the law of love, God will take away all sickness from our bodies. God will bring us into victory. He'll stand strong with us to defeat the enemy on every hand. For we are the righteousness of God in him. We are the righteousness of God in him, no matter how you feel. On your weakest day, on your most condemned feeling day, you're still the righteousness of God in him. You're still greater than any of the work of the devil. You're still more than a conqueror. So begin to say, begin to speak to those things. Did you notice what Paul said about that? What shall we then say to these things? What shall we say to condemnation? Say there's no condemnation in me because I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's what we say to these things. We speak to these things that would hold us back. We speak to these things that would rob us of confidence toward God and, and confidence in his word. We speak those things that the Bible says are true because the word of God can't lie. 
we say that we are more than a conqueror. Paul talked about when God explained to him or revealed to him that his grace was sufficient to overcome the persecution that he experienced. Paul said, I glory in my infirmities for when I am weak, then I'm strong. The weakest day that we feel, or when we feel the weakest, that's a better way to say it. When we feel the weakest, that's when the power of God shows up if we'll just simply speak it into our lives and into our circumstances. We are the righteousness of God in him. And there's nothing that either one of us can do, that any of us can do to change the fact that we've been made righteous by Jesus' blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are so good. We thank you for opening our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see and know just who we are in Christ. We see, Father, that you made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, for the express purpose that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we thank you that our righteousness is of you. We thank you that it's not dependent on what we've done or what we haven't done. Whether we stumble and fall or whether we make it successfully avoiding the pitfalls that the devil would try to ha- would have us to fall into. We thank you, Father, that our righteousness is not dependent on our behavior, but instead our righteousness is dependent on the blood of Jesus. And that blood's been shed for all eternity. There'll never be another need for one drop of blood to be shed or spilled because Jesus paid it all. Jesus bought and purchased for us everything that we need to be conquerors, to live in victory in this earthly life, to see the word of God come to pass on our behalf, and to experience the power in the name of Jesus. We love you, Father, and we thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name.